0: Hey fellow writer, welcome to another episode of the Coffee and Pens Podcast. This is number 9 already. After all, these self-published authors so far, this time we're talking to Michaeline Duclev from NPR We got a book deal with a division from Simon & Schuster. We discussed traditional publishing, storytelling, dealing with criticism and a little bit of parenting. Of course, we also discussed her extensive travelling. Just to write this book, she visited Yucatan in Mexico, the Arctic, and Tanzania. You're just seconds away from an emotional roller coaster through African hills and Arctic waters. Hi, hey, Michaeline. Welcome on the Coffee and Pens podcast. Let's start with a short introduction.
1: Yeah, so I'm Michaeline Duclef. I'm a um, science correspondent at National Public Radio in Washington, but I work from home. Um, and I'm also the author of Hunt Gather Parent. It's a book about how cultures around the world have
0: raised kids. For thousands of years thank you um let's start with the first question what is your favorite coffee
1: um you know I'm a tea drinker <laughs> sorry <laughs> but um I do like lattes you know <laughs> huh. okay
0: <laughs> yeah that's I'm- funny that's um the answer I usually get <laughs> uh, okay
1: I wish I could drink coffee I love coffee but it After a couple of days, it starts giving me a headache in the morning. If I don't, you know, I wake up with a headache. So Mm
0: -hmm. do you get very like fidgety, very, very uh, get a lot of energy?
1: Yes. Yes. I love coffee. I love, I love decaf, iced coffees, lattes, you know, but I, I can drink very little of it. The real stuff. My husband drinks enormous quantities. So,
0: Uh, I'm starting to think that something authors have been having common. I've heard that three or four times now, but I love coffee, (laughs) but I can't drink it anyway let's start about the book Um, so as it's very clear in your book you did a lot of traveling so you visited at least three places and the first thing that i wonder if you're open to talk about this is the budget like did your publisher help you with that budget how did you budget for all of this
1: yeah it's a great question you know i actually did um almost all of the traveling before i sold the book so i actually did it on my own dime and I really was hoping to like, you know, just pay that off with the advance, you know, I was hoping that the advance would would pay off my salary for a year for me to write the book. And then the, the, the costs of the traveling. And, you know, to be honest, the traveling actually was less expensive than I thought it was going to be because, um, you know, we weren't staying in very fancy accommodations at all. Right. And, um, I think I think listeners would be surprised at how much it costs that it was almost entirely the plane fare really at the end of the day. And then money for translators and on the on the ground help. Um, But I think you can travel pretty cheaply if you're willing to like, you know, take budget flights and, um, you know, not staying in fancy places. A lot of them, the money is um, the hotel. Right. I saved a ton of money because we weren't really staying in
0: hotels. Okay. Can you elaborate a little bit about your travels for the readers or listeners that have not read your book?
1: Yeah. So my daughter and I went down to the Yucatan in Mexico. We went to, we flew to Cancun and then the little village that we went to was about two hour drive from there. And it was very reasonable to stay in the village. We paid for our accommodations with a family. But again, it's very, very rural. You know, no air conditioning. It was the middle of the summer. It was it was one of the hottest places I've ever been. They were going through a heat wave. And so even at like two o'clock in the morning, it was like 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was, it was rough. It was rough accommodations. We were not staying at a resort. Um, but so that, that trip was actually very um, not very expensive because it was just basically the flight and the car. And then we flew up to the Arctic um, in Northern Canada and the flight is very expensive up there. I don't really understand, but to get to Yellowknife is cheap in Canada, but then once you fly up to Nunavut in the Arctic, it's very expensive. And that again, was almost all of the flight. And then we stayed with the family and we paid them, but it wasn't, it was very reasonable. And then we, then we flew to Tanzania. And again, the flight, expensive. And this ended up being our most expensive trip um, because we ended up with like a translator, a security guard and a cook. Like the translator didn't want to come without a cook. And so we had to hire a cook. And I mean, each person was from like a different tribe or ethnic group. And so we had like a great time and they were like, but it was more expensive than I wanted it to be because I had to pay all of them besides the travel. And so that was like a very long flight to Arusha, three planes, and then like an eight hour drive on kind of rough roads. That was the longest trip by far. Um, Again, the accommodations were cheap because we were basically camping
0: yeah so is this reason the whole financial reason the main reason you went with a traditional publisher or is there another reason as well
1: you know I didn't really know to be honest like I look back on it and I knew nothing like I had Mm -hmm. an agent contact me and um he kind of continued to contact me like over and over again and kind of convinced me to write this book I didn't really want to write this book I want to write another book um and I kind of looked, shopped around a little bit, like emailing some other agents and I was kind of lazy and I just did what he told me. And I think in some ways, I don't know, I'm kind of questioning the whole thing because I, maybe I should, I, sh- I don't know. I don't really know. It's To be honest, it's like an entire universe, right? The publishing world and like what happens and I knew nothing of it. And he knows that he knew everything, right? Because he's been in it like 30 years. I mean, he's a great guy his name is alex glass he's a really nice guy and he did he sold my book really well you know it's going to be in like 30 languages and like you know amazing things but like i felt like a lot of it i was kind of along for the ride and i was re- you know and i didn't yeah. really know what was going on um and and, and to be honest simon and schuster who's published it I, i'm part of a, a little boutique publishing um comp- Imprint of Simon and Schuster called Avid Reader. They've been great. They've been amazing. Like they're super responsive. They promoted the book. Um, I can't complain about any of it. Uh, I think it's just more like it wasn't a lot of consciousness on my part, and more just like okay. what people were telling me to do.
0: <laughs> right. Um, what do you think were the biggest biggest benefits
1: though? To to Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, they have this massive amount of knowledge and connections, right? Like they've done it. So the guy that I went with, the publisher's name is Jofi Ferrari Adler. He, you know, he, I picked him because he kind of had um, publishing New York Times bestsellers down to like a science. You know, at the time he, I think he had published like six or seven of them. And um, he kind of knows what needs to be done to get the book out there and to get people reading it and, um, and he did it you know they made this amazing cover they helped me get good people in the back and then they had this the publicist and the marketing and him you know made this incredible post-publication plan for the marketing I mean they did they did fantastic you know (laughs) I couldn't have asked for a better launch you know all right
0: um that's amazing
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it was stressful. It was incredibly Uh stressful and one of the most stressful months of my life. And it's why I haven't written another proposal because I don't do all that again. And I've even thought about going with a smaller publishing company because of how stressful it all was. There was a lot of pressure for the book to Mm -hmm. do well. And it was a very fast turnaround. And so, I mean... There's all that great stuff that I just said, but there is this like enormous amount of pressure on me, you know, to Mm -hmm. like, I had to write essays to go with the book. I had to do, I probably did like a hundred interviews, you know, I had to go on TV. Some people would love all this stuff and it was stressful. It was, it was hard,
0: you know? Yeah. Do you think that was the biggest challenge?
1: You know, I think there were two biggest challenges. I think the publicity was hard. I think hearing the criticism is hard. I mean, there's, look, there's no doubt, like, especially on Twitter, people said really mean things about me. And um, really, yeah, it was really bad for like a weekend. It was, it was horrible. Like things that I never even imagined people would interpret the book as they did. And it was really hard. And what ended up being harder was because of what people were saying on Twitter, it like went over and bled into my job. And like, like, I'll start to tear up. It was just, it was horrible for like a couple of weeks. And and then on top of it, there was this just this pressure because the book was at this top publisher, you know, for it to do really well. It just, mm-hmm. that, at, at, so we went on the trips and then I sold the book. And immediately after we, I sold the book, I felt this like enormous amount of pressure to write like a bestseller, right? And mm-hmm. um, that's, that's hard. That's That's hard for a first time writer, right?
0: yeah so those
1: I think I think are the two biggest things like this pressure to write something that is going to be a big seller Mm -hmm. and and then the criticism because you write one like if I I didn't write a bestseller I don't think people would have been so upset nobody would have cared right right (laughs)
0: but
1: but because it was so popular I got I got attacked for like a couple weeks online
0: wow that's that surprises me but that just shows that there are so many corners of the internet because yeah. like I'm in a community on Twitter where I just see nice people. Like i just, everyone's supporting each other. And I know there's this like um, scary place as well where people just <laughs> criticize. But all the authors I, I've talked to are like people, most of them are people that are like from my corner of the internet. Like I, I call it my corner, you know, the corner that I'm, I'm a part of. And then it keeps surprising me when I hear like these other stories.
1: You know it was really interesting because I didn't even know it was happening. It was in mm-hmm. some other corner, like like you say. Uh-huh. And um, NPR was the one that like brought it to my attention because it didn't. The person didn't even. It was started by one person basically, and um, and she hadn't even read the book. The book hadn't even come out yet, and she said these very this, this very kind of mean accusatory things. And um and so and yeah, NPR was the one that told me about it. It was um yeah I don't know it was really very surprising to me um but supposedly the publisher Jofi um told me that it happens with every popular book now Mm. that there's like some backlash from somebody that somebody sees like the book and you know a popular book and then they want to like kind of get attention from it
0: um okay yeah can see okay. it happening. It's a compliment, actually.
1: It is, but I'm I'm a I'm I'm thin-skinned. I'm tough. I can go live out, you know, in a camp for weeks with, you know, people and mm-hmm. any type of any person in the world. But um, I don't know. It's just so personal. It was such an a personal attack. And anyway, I still really hurts me. It happened in March, and I still like I say, like I'm tearing up now. Like it's still, it's still very hurtful. Well, would happen so Mm
0: -hmm. that's that's a shame that's (laughs) that's a shame that it should happen well you know
1: (laughs) like I say I can't complain the book has done really well and um I think the best part of it is readers email me you know every day and tell me how much they enjoy the book and how much it's helped them so
0: yeah that's the best part no, I've, I've that's the best of, part. I've been one of them. I've emailed you to tell you how great it is. I can't wait to buy the Spanish version to give it to my wife.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> anyway, let's move on to a different topic. I'm okay. wondering so you did a lot of research, you did a yeah. lot of traveling. So I'm wondering about the time division between traveling, research, editing, writing. Could you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, it was too fast. So I actually started researching it for my job in 2018. So for my job, I went down to the Yucatan and then okay. later that year I went up to the Arctic. And so I had I had done quite a bit of, I'd say like almost a year of research on and off for my job before I even proposed the book. And so the book proposal was, was really written off of those stories. And so I had like an enormous amount of research done um, before Rosie and I traveled, and really the first two trips to the Yucatan and to the Arctic were kind of repeat in some way. Like we went back to the same village. I went to a different part of the Arctic. I've been to three different parts of the Arctic total. So I'd say there's about a year of me like reading and doing two trips. You know, interviewing psychologists, interviewing anthropologists. I mean, really, kind of. I thought I knew a lot before. You know. Um, and then Rosie and I spent seven weeks, eight weeks traveling. And then um, I spent about a almost exactly a year, a little over, almost exactly a year writing it all up. Um, and so almost all of the interviews were done before I started writing it. They were done during that first year of research and then during the travel. And then I would be writing it and maybe if I needed a little bit more research or I would call somebody but it was really kind of like a big chunk of research some traveling and then writing with research kind of mixed in Um, but it was super fast I wrote 90,000 words in like a year
0: so if I got it right it's one year of research and traveling and one year of writing and and editing as well I suppose
1: yeah maybe like a year and a half of research and traveling really to be, so, I mean, I wasn't doing it full time, but it was like, a, it course. was a long, it was a long, I've been doing this now really for almost four years,
0: like total,
1: like the book took about three years, but I had been kind of reading about the topic for a year before then.
0: Okay. Uh, um, now- and the other
1: thing is I want to point out, I, I hired an outside editor, which was huge. This person, this woman was huge. I could not have finished this book on time without her.
0: Was this not something the publisher provided?
1: Yeah. So um, a bunch of my friends that have, not a bunch, but several of my friends that have published their books recommended it. They told me that the in-house editors hardly do anything and you should get one. And actually my agent thought I didn't need one, but I i kind of went with my gut and I hired a woman, her name's um, Carrie Fry. She's a, She was amazing. So I would send her chunks of the like, big, like a third of the book and she would yeah. go through it. And then I would revise and she made a huge, I, I thank her at the end, she made a huge difference in the book.
0: Do You think that was the best decision you made or was there something else that was really important?
1: I think it was definitely one of them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a good editor is like gold, right? Like I've been a journalist now for 10 years and like, if you have a good editor, everything is different and um she has edited books for years and so she can because one of the problems for me was like I'm a journalist I write like 500,000 word pieces right and this Mm -hmm. is like handling the amount of text that I was handling was really hard for me and writing that way too like in these long you know like she kept asking for more like as a news writer i just write these very very short right and she wanted you know things to kind of get drawn out and and, you know, bring the reader in. And so she really helped me shape it as a book and just handle that amount of text,
0: you know. Do you think there was some kind of of pressure from from maybe your editor, from the publisher to reach a certain word count?
1: You know, I I overshot. They wanted like 75,000 words and I gave them 90 and they seemed fine with it. My agent was surprised that they didn't cut
0: it down. (laughs) Okay, so that must have been (laughs) happy.
1: yeah they did actually very little structural editing you know where you like there was basically Mm -hmm. none where you're like moving things around Mm -hmm. and like it was all line editing really and they improved it with the line editing
0: yeah i think the structure was well so I, i understand that there was not a lot happening there
1: and most of that was made during the proposal phase so the proposal was like 50 pages long it was long and it was very detailed um, so I, because I had traveled and I had done so much research, I knew really what was going to go mm-hmm. um, in it, you know?
0: Yeah. i have heard that proposals are quite long. So someone else mentioned as well, that your proposal is almost a book actually. So when it gets rejected, it's like a lot of time lost. Yeah. You, yeah. Oh
1: my God. Do, yeah. So <laughs> you think
0: that's, that would hold you back from writing a second book in the same way?
1: No, you know, I, I actually wanted to write a different book. And like I said, the agent convinced me to write this book, which I mean, he was right. He knew he could sell it. And yeah. he did. And he knew, you know, he thought it would be popular. Um, I think really what's holding me back from, he wants me to write a proposal like today. He's like, you know, write another one. Cause you know, it makes him money. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what's holding me back is like, I don't know the stress of it. It was really mm-hmm. stressful. You know, I mean, I mean on top of it the pandemic made things worse right I mean in March my kid came home I had no childcare and I had to finish writing this book <laughs> you know there's no doubt that, that that made things worse but the stress of finishing the book you know having it be good and and then on top of it you know facing the criticism of it it was hard yeah <laughs> I, I know I feel like it, and then on top of that I went back to work Right, so I went back to work in September last year. So I was working like during the mm-hmm. editing. You know, I thought I'd turn the book in and I'm done and actually turn the book in and then it's like enormous amounts of work are left. Enormous, um, like five rounds of editing.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and then I finished that and then it was like, okay, now you need to write some essays to publicize the book. <laughs>
0: yeah but those helped that's how I got drawn in like I read two of those essays like I read yeah, one Yeah, no, it
1: totally helped <laughs> yeah I read Sorry. one and I
0: said hmm, this, this is similar to something I read a couple of months ago and I know I saved the other one in, in Evernote so I said oh. I'll have a look like hey these are about the same author let me have a look at a book and you know I like the ideas it's like something that resonated with me so I got your book mm. <laughs> so it, it helped Good. I'm glad. <laughs> so not in vain.
1: Yeah, um, no, it's true. Thank you. It makes me, it makes me happy to hear that.
0: Awesome. Um, so you mentioned that you actually wanted to write another book. Yeah. What's that about?
1: So before I did the parenting studies at NPR, I did a couple of studies about backs and back pain. Cause I had really bad back pain for about 10 years um, and those stories were actually more popular than the parenting ones. So I have, I have a whole book idea around them, but I don't want to say exactly what it is. But it would be, it would be kind of similar as the parenting book, but looking at, um, at like why when we get older. Not even that old. I was like thirty. Like why do we have back pain? Like that's not how people used to be. Um, yeah. And there's a reason. There's a juicy reason.
0: Okay. So- <laughs> but you're not sharing it. <laughs>
1: No, because <laughs> I don't want to get scooped. I'm okay. very fearful of being scooped. I was afraid I was going to get scooped on this book, even though I don't think that was going to happen.
0: Though. Okay. But it's also um like a myth-busting format because that's what it is, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Myth-busting myth and also like cross-cultural, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like instead of navel-gazing, like I like to say, like, you know, just looking at ourselves, really looking outward and seeing kind of where we've gone astray so it's very similar Um,
0: Uh, okay but the plans for that are still quite unsure
1: yeah i need to write the proposal um supposedly the agent says the proposal doesn't have to be as long i think the he told me that um the first book you write it you have to convince them
0: more Mm -hmm. Um, yeah once you've got a a good selling a best-selling book it's a bit easier people want to get back to you Cause they know that that's can one of the books.
1: best things. That's right. That's one of the, the best things of, of this whole, with the book being popular. Cause I have to say, I'm not really making any money off this book because mm-hmm. I paid for my, um, so usually if you get an advance, a significant advance, you don't get royalties, right? Because you have to sell, um, enough books to make up your advance. Okay. So, um, so I, I don't expect to make any money off royalties and I, I, I basically paid my salary and I paid the travel, and then almost after taxes, almost all of it I have, I am or have given, I've given back to the the communities in the book. So, yeah, I just wanted to be. That's it. great. Some people, yeah, which is another reason why when people will attack me, it's kind of like somebody even said that, like, because you're making money off these people. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not making money off these people. Actually, if I don't do the taxes right, I might lose money. Is what I'm starting to realize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: so. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, but um,
0: and even if you're making money off those people supposedly you're still helping them in a way because you're sharing their story
1: you know i hope that that was one of the goals was to to somehow give back to the people in the book and whether you know money is one way and i think valuing their ideas is another you know and and helping people understand and value different ways of doing things, I think is important. I mean, especially in the US, right? We have such a, a mix of people and one way tends to get valued the most and respected. And I am I hope that the book will help people kind of see like, oh, maybe a parent is doing it differently, but it, that way still has value and worth. Yeah, know?
0: yeah. Um, you mentioned that one of the key aspects in, in the three cultures that you visited at least and two is storytelling yeah do you think that you learn something from them that you then could apply to writing your book and even to your career as a journalist
1: oh that's a good question like from their storytelling
0: yeah from their ways of storytelling from the importance that they give it
1: yeah like if there's something that i've applied by the way that they tell stories I mean, I've always thought about the storytelling is how I interact with people, right? So I love storytelling because it's indirect, right? So you mm-hmm. can kind of tell somebody they're doing something wrong and kind of criticize them through a story that they don't even realize you're kind of criticizing them. <laughs> you know, that's why I think a lot of cultures use story is because it's a way of criticizing people without um, causing conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I do do that more now. I hadn't th- I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I think one of the things that they've taught that I learned is is about kind of being circular more.
0: Okay. So we tend
1: to tell stories that are very linear. Uh-huh. You know, that have these progressions and resolutions. I think after being with them, I've appreciated more this kind of circular way of telling a story where you kind of help the reader move along by circling into something. So you kind of tell them, you kind of bring them along and then you kind of tell them the end in the resolution and you kind of bring them along further and kind of telling it, right? And so it's this yeah. kind of s- softer, um, oh, I know one, this is in the book all the time. So instead of like telling people what to do, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I consciously in the book try not to say like you should. Okay. Or 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 um like it's it's um it's more indirect. And sometimes it actually was the passive voice. Mm-hmm. And the publisher got mad and would or not mad, but the publisher would try to move it into uh-huh. the active voice. And I was like, no, this is I'm intentionally using the passive voice, like soften it and to make it not about directly to you, but you know. Let you make your own mind up about uh-huh. it. Um, I think it's interesting how we use words. Yeah. And how we use language. It's very directive in English and very like pointed and t- kind of telling people what to do. Mm-hmm. And also very conflictual, like saying things like, Well, why did you, why did you open the door? Why did you, why did you do this? It's a very conflictual question. And in many, many cultures that aren't so conflictual and more cooperative the language is such that it's it's softer and allows the person to kind of come to their own conclusions uh, um and and like they they wouldn't people would never say why did you like like in the, when we were in the arctic i never heard that question why yeah. did
0: you that that reminds me of of something personal like in my between like my wife and me so she mm-hmm. she speaks spanish mm-hmm. and she's like oh she always says like for example Hay que abrir la puerta, which means like something like the door has to be opened mm. and, and I'm, I get so upset because like I know she's like she wants me to do it but she like kind of makes it impersonal like Impressive. someone needs to do it <laughs> yes. and I'm like why do you make it impassive like if you want me to do it but then I read your book and it's like it's like what all these cultures do that like kind of like Instead of directly t- telling someone, "Hey, you need to open the door," it's like someone needs to open the door. Like the door needs to be opened, and I- I'm t- <laughs> I'm trying to like accept it now as-, as something that's actually better. But I've just been raised in this Western culture. It's like, um, like directly.
1: Yeah, it's hit you in the face. Hit you yeah. in the door. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Um, it, because I also think we think of it as like passive aggressive. Like pa- being passive is like yeah. somehow bad because it's aggressive. And yeah. But to be honest, in my experience, as I've I've become a little bit more passive, there's less conflict. At least in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a like a language rule problem. Mm-hmm. So like. Yeah, I mean, why is passive voice, voice yeah. wrong?
1: Yeah. Right, exactly. Why is passive voice wrong? Like in a lot of places, that's the norm, you know? So interestingly, they asked, in, in one of the studies I was reading recently, they asked Maya kids like eight and nine. So for the listeners, my Maya, Maya parents raised really helpful kids, super helpful kids. And um, they asked the little, little kids like eight and nine, like, why do you help your family? And one of the little boys said, because the work tells me to do it. Mm-hmm. Which is similar uh-huh. the door needs to be closed the door yeah. is telling you to close it right the work yeah. the dishes are telling me and it's a very like um i don't know it's very passive right because it's not the parents telling them the kid yeah. or i don't know very interesting to me
0: yeah so. it is, it is. <laughs> okay back to writing a little bit do you think there's anything else that you learned from these travels about writing
1: oh to keep a journal uh-huh. like like the, the first trip I went to, when we went to the Yucatan, I didn't journal every night, um, because I was tired and I was lazy. Um, and it made it harder to write. It Mm -hmm. was a lot harder to write. And then the next two trips I journaled every night, even if I thought there was nothing, um, I wrote everything down and those are golden. Like those notes are so golden because the moment is even though you feel like you're going to, f- you remember it, you don't, and you don't remember the feelings and you don't remember the ideas mm. and the words and um, yeah, those notes. And you can, I think you can tell by the book, like in the Arctic and in the Tanzania, there's a lot more interaction with Rosie and with the people. And it's because I had those, those scenes like written down and, in the Yucatan I was trying to remember more and.
0: Right. And anything else, from your experience as as a first time author and a journalist that you would like to share with new authors
1: i mean i I had a friend that had just written a book and she wrote it super fast and and I could never write that fast but she she said she had to write a thousand words a day and that she said it didn't matter what they look like and so I could never write that fast so I gave myself five hundred words a day and I really kind of stuck to it and there were many days where that's all I wrote you know mm-hmm. um, but it really helped to have like um, a routine people write yeah. always say, you know, just like, I'm going to write 500 words a day. And if that's all I do, that's all I do, you know, because writing, you can't do it seven, eight hours every day. No, you yeah. cannot do it. No, you can do it four or five and then you need a weekend, you know? And, yeah, um, and you know, you need time for like, I write in my head, right? Like I write first in my head and then, the other thing that i learned while i was doing it was that i could write into the chapter. i could write myself into the point of the chapter like i kind of yeah. already knew what the points of chapters were but i didn't know kind of maybe the way that they were gonna move narratively and and if i didn't i could just keep writing like sometimes it would be like forty four thousand words in and i'd be like oh this is what this chapter wants to be and i okay. never did that before and then i would use maybe like a thousand words of it or something but i just mm, kept writing kept writing, kept going, and just kind of being confident that, like, it would come, like, the the narrative arc would come, and sometimes I actually ended up using pieces of it in different chapters, you know, or for Uh some of those essays, right, like, I never threw it out, you know, never throw it out.
0: Yeah, that's a big tip for any type of writer.
1: Yeah, never, and even if, like, sometimes I'll be like, I have to write this, and it has nothing to do with what I'm writing, just write it, Mm -hmm. because... That's the muse, right? Yeah, like, get I it really out of your head. In the muse. Mm-hmm. And you might never use it, but you, I, I, think, I've, I think I've used almost everything I've always written, maybe a few things.
0: So you mentioned in your book that you traveled with, with your daughter, Rosie. And at some point, I remember you said that you'd like to train Rosie so that at some point she can help you with your writing, with everything yes. that you do. Did you get any help from her? but this book
1: one thing that rosie so she was three so she's tiny okay getting interviews from people with a three-year-old is a hundred times easier getting people to like talk to you welcome you into their home open up to you she was like a golden ticket like because i travel for my job right and Mm -hmm people are were so much more willing to talk to me in a very informal manner around Rosie they wanted to talk to Rosie they wanted to be with Rosie and so I mean I I, I joke around but I kind of want to take her with me wherever I go because like, <laughs> she's older now but like yeah she really was like a golden ticket like people and they would tell me they would give me advice about her right and like yeah and then when I got home you know, it's funny because I started using Rosie to help me with NPR stories too. Like I'll ask Rosie, especially about parenting stuff. Like, what do you think about this? Like this idea? And she'll have really great ideas. Like one time she summarized, I, I think I wrote in the book, she summarized some idea like really well. And I was like, wow, like that's the nut graph. That's like the, uh-huh. so I think, in I think talking to your kids about your ideas, like is such a great, because they have such a different perspective and you know, they'll just say something and you'll be like, I didn't think of it that way. So I always talk to her about my ideas and, you know, get her opinions. And, uh-huh. you know, eventually I, I want her to like cut tape at NPR, my, the radio piece. That's what I, that's the goal is to like, get her to cut tape because I, it's, yeah. I hate cutting tape. But she's already helped me so much. And I, when I travel for the next book, because I will eventually write the next book, but like, I I, I will take her for sure yeah yeah she <laughs> she'll be older because she'll help right and she yeah. can you know at that point she can do like she can hold the microphone she can she can do some production work
0: you yeah know? uh-huh. she
1: knows she's listened to so many interviews by the time she's a teenager she'll she'll be like more experienced than most journalists
0: of course yeah without a doubt <laughs> um so michaeline um since we're approaching the end, is there anything uh, you think I didn't ask, but I should have asked?
1: About writing? and
0: Yeah, about writing or your book?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's one of those things that you just have to do, you know, like, I know I made mistakes during it, but I just kind of did it, you know, it was just kind of like figuring it out as I went and I think that's with writing, that's what you got to do, right? The more you write, the, more, the better you get. And the, the publishing world is crazy. And yeah, I don't know if that helps at all. <laughs> I don't know I mean, if that just, made any sense, but like, yeah. just, you got to do it. You know, you got to like, you got to put yourself out there and take risks.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then, then <laughs> two more questions. Sure. Um, something everyone wants to know on me in a specific uh, so you wrote about parenting, especially about toddlers. But is there anything that you learned from those three cultures about how to calm a baby?
1: Oh, to calm a baby, you know it's interesting. Like very few, ba- very few babies were ever upset.
0: Yeah how <laughs> how is it possible?
1: <laughs> so I will think. I think the most, the biggest difference in our culture. And basically all many, 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 many cultures is how much babies are held. so in when when Rosie was born, I felt this pressure not to hold her. like people told me not to hold her. like you got to put her down or she'll be you have to hold her all the time. And to be honest, I didn't really know how to hold her, right? Like okay. I thought you hold her like this, like the way we hold babies, right? but so everywhere we went, babies are held in carriers, yeah, right. So in the Arctic, there's these things called Maltese, which the baby's on the back. In Tanzania, they're wrapped around. Um, in the Yucatan, there's less of that because it's very hot. Yeah. Um, but but somebody is holding the baby all the time. And, and there's, a, there's um, a lot, I would say a lot of evidence that babies are meant to be held all the time. And there's this sense in our culture that that like coddles them and 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 women do a lot, women and men, they do a lot while they're holding their babies. You know, they they, mm-hmm. they forage, they cook on fires, they, you know, and and so I think that's why babies weren't upset because they were being held so much. Yeah. You know, like in the Arctic kids are inside these amelties until basically the next kid comes along. Right? They're okay. the like they stay in it even to pee. Like the parent knows like when the child's going to pee because they know so well, like their body in their signs and they'll turn them around and then let them pee. So it just shows you like how much babies are held. So my advice is like, don't feel bad about holding the baby. You know, I mean, like if I had to do it all again, I would just carry, I would have carried Rosie Around with me everywhere. And I would have just gone on with my life more and just mm-hmm. carried her and brought her yeah. with. That's how that's how babies are made. They're, they're made to be carried and like held and just and you and not entertained. You just go on with your life. Your hands are free because the baby's in a carrier. Mm-hmm. And that is is pathetic. That is where you get peace <laughs> with the baby. Yeah. Like the people will tell you that spend time with hunter-gatherer communities, they never hear babies cry at
0: night yeah. or in the day because they're just held yeah that's that's our experience as well when we hold uh, mia like when we have her in a carrier mm-hmm. and when we're walking like as long as we're not too long in the same space she can Moving. be in that carrier for five hours six hours and she won't complain uh, but no. then when when we're at home and even when i'm just holding her normally as you said like what we suppose is normal actually yeah. she, she doesn't last five minutes yeah, um,
1: I know it's crazy and strollers, crazy, crazy idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she liked those as a as a little baby, not not as much anymore now.
1: Oh my god, <laughs> Rosie never. We could not put her in yeah. strollers. She would just scream like.
0: Oh okay, um, I am aware of your time. So final question: yes. What is your secret?
1: My secret mm-hmm. to writing. Yeah. Okay. I think there's two things. (laughs) One, I like, I'm always questioning what I see, you know, like Mm -hmm. the stroller. Like, okay. Like right now, like I have like 10 stories in my mind that are all things that we think are like normal and like appropriate. And like, I'm always thinking, wait a second. Is that right? You know, like Uh just, I don't know. There's so many assumptions we make even in science. Right. And they're just, I'm always like, there's is it right? Is it like, especially the big problems like, like back pain or parenting, like if we were really doing it right, we wouldn't have it. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. So I don't know. I'm always just like thinking about that. I think the second thing is, is like, I'm, I connect with my feelings. I mean, you saw okay. like, I, you're like the only one yeah. who made me cry, but like, I, I like really stay in tune to that. Like what makes me feel something uh-huh. if it's making me feel something then it's going to make other people feel something oh right and so then like I, I i stay in tune with that and then the other thing is i never write ideas down so i write like a journal of what, what things happened right but like i okay. never write like ideas down because if they're really good ideas they'll come back
0: yeah okay
1: and i only pursue the things that are just like nagging me mm-hmm. because if they're nagging me they're gonna like
0: resonate yeah all right
1: i don't know if that helps at all but
0: yeah that was you perfect gotta have a,
1: you gotta have a big heart and you got a question
0: oh yeah that was perfect thank you before we go where can people find out more about you and your book
1: you know i'm on twitter sometimes it's at foodie science on twitter but you can also email me mducleff at npr i try to respond to almost all of them otherwise um you can get it online and yeah thank you thank you for having me i love talking about writing because you not many people do
0: so great to have you thank you very much
1: thank you and good luck with your baby
0: thank you hey thank you for listening to Michael My and myself on coffee and pens podcast If this was your first episode don't forget to hit the subscribe button as always, you can find all useful links on coffeeandpens.com. And please follow this journey on Twitter as well, at Coffee Pens, or on Instagram, at coffee underscore pens. If you want to learn more about My go to her personal website, michellenduclev.com, that's D-O-U-C-L-E-F, or follow her on Twitter, at foodiescience. See you next time.